are uh, continuing our series in Deuteronomy. We're going to be looking at Deuteronomy chapter 9 this morning. And as we look at that, I want, want all of us to think about um, kind of the way we view life. In other words, do we have a, a merit-based view of life? Where, where everything is about what we can earn or how, how uh, we have to put in all, all this hard work in order to have any kind of success. Um, may, maybe you're just like always obsessed with being right about everything. Uh, may, maybe you're on the edge of your seat um, hoping you'll get likes on your social media posts. This is all kind of a way that we look at life in a merit-based way. Or do we see life as a grace-based kind of life, like where, you know, yes, we work hard, and yes, we, uh, we experience success because of our hard work, but we realize that what's really behind everything, anything good that we have, is the grace of God, that God's grace is the catalyst for that, and that God's grace sustains us through life. And so, which, which way do you look at life? I think if, if we're honest, in America, it's very hard uh, not to look at life in a merit-based way. It's kind of the, like the most, uh, the greatest meritocracy the world's ever seen, right? Like if you, if you want to work your, your tail off in America, you can, you can rise to the top. Uh, and that's what we value. We like to earn our way. And uh, in some ways we have a hard time with grace. I think about, when I think about earning, you know, I just... I go to my, my five-year-old son, Isaac. He's in Miss Kathy's class at, at uh, Westtown Christian Academy. It's a wonderful, wonderful... Miss Kathy is amazing. And uh, she has this cool little thing called the, the treasure box. And uh, every day when I pick Isaac up, if he gets the treasure box, he runs. He says, Daddy, I got the treasure box. You know, he does something nice to earn a little, little toy. Um, but on the days when he doesn't get the treasure box, he, he'll come walk like this... Dang, I didn't get the treasure box. And it's just this, I mean, man, yin and yang right there. He, he likes getting that treasure box. He likes to feel special. But I think he also really likes to earn rewards because of his good behavior. I mean, he, he loves that. That's just kind of natural for us. And, and grace is foreign to us, right? Uh, Christy Anyabwile says that law is our native language. We have to learn the language of grace. So the language of grace, a grace-based world or worldview, is what God reveals to us in the Bible. This is overwhelmingly the message of the Bible, is that everything good that we have is by grace. And I think in Deuteronomy 9, we're going to see what that looks like. So we're going to read just uh, verses 1 through 6, just to start out. God says, and Moses writes, Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today to go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than you, cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim, whom you know and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Know therefore today that he who goes over before you is a consuming fire, is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you. So you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord your God has promised you. Do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you. 
It is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land, whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. It is not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you're going to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you, and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So the first thing I want to look at here is is that God granting us success in life is an act of amazing grace. It is always an act of amazing grace. We, we have a couple of things here in these verses that show us the heart of God, like the motivation of God to let Israel go into the promised land. Uh, and the first thing we see is that God's motivated by his faithfulness. He talks about how hundreds of years before this day, he had made a promise to Abraham and then to Isaac and then to Jacob. He said, I'm going to make you a mighty nation. You're going to have lots of descendants. And they're, they're going to be so numerous that they're all going to be able to take this, this promised land, this Canaan. Okay, It was a promise that God made to these guys. That's why it's called the promised land. It's because it was a land that was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So God makes a covenant with them, and, and God is never going to break his covenant. And so one of the main motivations is that God is a perfectly faithful God who does not break his covenant. He is giving Israel the promised land because he is faithful. He's also giving them the promised land because of his justice. So the Canaanites, the, the Anakim that we see here, uh, the Philistines, the Amorites, the, all, all these ites, they are an immoral, idolatrous people. And, and God has decided at this point that they have had, they've had enough time, and it is time for him to enact his justice upon these people, and, and Israel is the tool of his judgment. Now, this is a struggle for us, right? This is, a, this is one of those things in the Old Testament that people are like, how, I, I don't know, I struggle with this. I, I, how can God be a, a loving God if he commands Israel to go in and, and just destroy these people? Like, that doesn't make sense. It's not a loving God. And, and we don't have a lot of time to go into this, but suffice it to say that God's justice is actually just as important of a characteristic as his love. I mean, I mean if, we, if we only have a God who only loves and is not just, then we have a God who won't actually ever do anything about sin. And that's disastrous. So we have a God who, who is loving and who is just. He can't let sin and rebellion just go on forever without some sort of justice. And we see that here. And yet, even in that, we see God's grace at work. Uh, look at Genesis fifteen sixteen real quick. This is the chapter where God makes the blood covenant with Abram. And after, as he's doing that, he says this, this curious thing. He says, and they, meaning your descendants, Abraham, the Israelites, shall come back here in the fourth generation, which is uh, 400 plus years later, uh, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. What's he saying here? 
He's saying to Abraham, God, or, or Abraham, <laughs> your, your descendants are not going to inherit the promised land until after the people who currently live in the promised land have had 440 years to repent of their sin and their idolatry. This is a main motivation why God delays this. So God gives them all of this time to repent, and that's a grace. And what we see here is that, is that grace, God's grace, is the primary reason why anything good happens in our lives, and it's the primary reason why Israel is able to enter the promised land. Now, so God says, Israel, do you remember the Anakim? Remember this, these, these giants, these big people that your fathers were so afraid of? You remember them? You're going you're gonna to destroy them today. In fact, I'm going to go before you. I'm going to drive them out, and then you're going to come behind me, and it's just going to be easy because I've already gone before you. You're, you're going to be like the ultimate March Madness Cinderella here, but it's not going to be because you're mighty. It's not going to be because you're brilliant. It's going to be because I, God, went before you. I am the Lord. Nothing can stand in my way. Now notice, even though this is entirely because of God's grace, Israel still has to do something, right? That verse 1, God says, you, Israel, are going to dispossess the Anakim. Verse 3, you, Israel, you're going to drive them out and make them perish quickly. So God goes before them, but they also have to accomplish something. He's also going to use them as part of how he executes his plans. Think about uh, in the book of Joshua. You know, when Joshua commands his people to go and um, God says, march around the city of Jericho seven times, like for seven days, with trumpets and jars. And then at the end of the time, you're just going to give a great shout and the walls are going to fall. That's what happens. I mean, it's so so weird because they don't, they definitely don't have a traditional battle plan, right? There's no catapults and, you know, spears and all that, all that stuff. Now, did God, did God need them to do that? Absolutely not. I mean, if God wanted to just make the walls of Jericho fall just by speaking, he could have easily done that. Um, but God wanted Israel to be part of what he was doing, and yet to be part of what he was doing in such a way that they would easily understand that this is not about us. It's about, it's about God. It's about his grace going, going before us. So, so God's world is grace-based. It's grace-based. That, that God would go before any of us, that God would pave the way for us, that God would, would include us in part of how he executes his plans, it is all because of his grace. I think about how God went before Jennifer and I when we um, decided to adopt Nathaniel and Elijah. This was back in 2012. We were, um, we had sold our house in Chattanooga and we were building a a new house and we had this four-month window where after we had closed in our first house, it wasn't, our new house wasn't going to be complete until another four months. And so we had to find temporary housing. And uh, thankfully, we, we had these friends who He's an eye doctor, and, and they live on this lake in Chattanooga, and they had this massive home in their basement. 
is like bigger than our old house. And it's like a five-star resort. So, I mean, when I say we lived in our friend's basement, like we weren't slumming it, y'all. It was nice. I mean, I'm telling you. So while we were there, this guy, our friend JD, he has all these connections to Uganda. He goes over there and does eye surgeries and does a lot of missionary work. And uh, one of his friends, Rashid, just happened to come and visit while we were there at their house. And uh, we got to talking and we talked about adoption and Rashid's like, oh, our missions organization uh, has an orphanage. Uh, you can adopt from us. And we're like, all right, cool, that's great. And then seven months later, we, uh, we were in Uganda adopting Nathaniel and Elijah. And um, look, it took a lot of prayer and a lot of fundraising and a whole lot of government paperwork. But ultimately, and we, we had to do all that, but ultimately it was the grace of God. I mean, we would never, ever have made, there's no way we would have made that connection without the grace of God. What examples have you seen in your life of the grace of God? How many thousands of examples have you, can you think about right now where God has gone before you and paved the way for you and been gracious to you? I mean, there's so many they happen each and every day. We, we have, obviously, the most extraordinary grace, which is the grace of salvation in Jesus Christ. I mean, that is by grace alone. But even in the mundane, I mean, even the fact that we could make coffee, even the fact that we know how to drive a car, even the fact that anybody like, knows how to shoot a basketball, that's all common grace. The fact that any of us gets to take another breath is Grace. Acts 17, 28 says, In God we live, move, and have our being. We live because of the grace of God. So success, it's never just about our hard work. It's never just about what we earn. Merit, hard work, treasure boxes, these things, they have their place. They, they can motivate us in a temporary sort of way. And, and the Bible does talk about the benefits of hard work. The Bible encourages hard work. It encourages planning. But it does not encourage us to think that everything we get is only a result of our hard work. It is primarily a result of God's grace. And it is God's grace that sustains our lives. Now, it's interesting that there is greater emphasis in this passage on, on something that is not why God grants Israel success. Here's, here's what I mean. God does not act on our behalf because of our righteousness. That's our second point for today. God does not act on our behalf because of our righteousness. Three times in this passage, he says, Israel, it's not because of your righteousness. It's not because of your righteousness. It is not because of your righteousness. It's just not. Okay? Why three times? It's, it's emphasis. I mean, in Hebrew, they didn't have exclamation points. So if they wanted to emphasize something, they repeat it three times. That's why Isaiah 6, holy, holy, holy is the Lord, God Almighty. So why not because of their righteousness? Well, there's one very obvious reason that we'll talk about at the end, but the less, slightly less obvious reason is because if, if they were entering the promised land because of their righteousness, then I think Israel would have been tempted to think that they deserved this success and that God owed them something. 
Okay, think about uh, Romans 4.2. It says, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. In other words, if Abraham could, could keep the law successfully and like earn points with God, kind of like in The Good Place, right, that show? If you could earn points with God, then you've got some, some boasting material between you and God. You know, you can kind of negotiate with him, okay? So, so God is saying that's, that's not how it works. It's not due to our righteousness. And, and, if, and if it were due to our righteousness, then here's what would happen. We would treat our relationship with God as if it was purely transactional. Okay, so last year, we accomplished something truly, truly great in our lives. We, we became executive members at Costco. <laughs> That's right. So I, uh, I went from getting, you know, a certain percentage of, of cash back on our credit card purchases to a even bigger percentage of cash back, which is, which is nice. Still a drop in the bucket to, to, compared to what I pay them. But so I, I use the card, I spend money, Costco gives me a little bit of money back. And I'm so excited when I get that yearly rewards check, you know. I just want to go give it all back to Costco. <laughs> so, but think about it, Costco does not love me, right? I mean, Costco doesn't really care about me, they, they care about my money. They don't care about me, and, and if I'm honest, I appreciate Costco, but I don't love Costco. I just really, I'm using them for their bulk products. I mean, that's what it is. So this is a transactional relationship. There's no, like, if, if Costco takes away these rewards, I probably would stop going there, okay? I don't know, maybe, maybe I wouldn't. But <laughs> do you get what I'm saying? Like, if we think that God owes us something for our good behavior then we start to view our relationship with God that way. It's just about, God, what can you give me? All right, I'll do this for you, God, if you'll do this for me. And then if our relationship with God becomes transactional, then every other relationship in our life also becomes transactional. Because how we view our relationship with God affects how we view every other relationship in our lives. So we begin to value people only for what they can do for us. Or we begin to despise people who can't do anything for us. If they're no use to us, we, we just write them off. We despise them. Uh, we begin to parent without grace. So we teach our kids that life is just about achieving good behavior. Life is just about getting to college so you can get a good job. We don't teach them humility. We don't teach them forgiveness. We don't teach them repentance. Or, or then we, like, if we... If we view relationships transactionally, we start keeping these records of wrong against the people we love the most, like our spouses. It's like we want this sort of place of power in that relationship, so we hold these records of wrong against them. So we can go, aha, remember? See, I win. I don't know why we like that. So... What's happening there, though, is that we're, we're living our lives as though we've got it all figured out somehow. Like, like we've got the upper hand in life. Like, like we've got a reason to boast. Like, like we've got some sort of special righteousness. And we just don't. 
we're completely missing out on the fact that we only get another minute on this earth because of God's grace. So we, we should, if we realize that, we should be so humbled, so thankful, that we don't have time to be self-righteous. But we are stubborn. And that leads me to our last, our last point, which is that the even bigger problem with our righteousness is we don't have any. We don't have any. That's Deuteronomy 9, 6 through 7. It says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. So if Israel is not righteous, what are they? Well, they are stubborn and they are rebellious. That's what he says. God says, remember and do not forget how stubborn and rebellious you have been. He, he provides examples. Okay? He's, he's got a lot of examples here. He, we've talked about some of these throughout this, this uh, series in Deuteronomy, right? How they have been in this wilderness and they've been just grumbling grumbling about not having enough food to eat and not having enough water to drink. No, I, I wish we could go back to Egypt where at least we had three square meals a day, never mind the fact that we were slaves. Or, you know, you think about, he mentions Mount Sinai. When, when Moses goes up on the mountain to get the Ten Commandments and he's gone for 40 days and 40 nights, what's Israel doing? Well, they're making a golden calf to worship. And it's so fun. I always laugh at this because when Moses confronts Aaron, Aaron's like, I don't know what happened. All the gold just took the shape of a golden calf. It was kind of amazing. I'm just like, man, you sound like, you sound like my little kids making excuses. But, but there's so many other examples that, that God mentions here of how Israel sinned and rebelled against him. In verse 23, we see why that is. It says, Then you rebelled against the commandment of the Lord, your God, and did not believe him or obey his voice. That's, that last part is key. You did not believe him or obey his voice. There are so many examples in my life and probably in your life too where, where we can see how God has provided. We can see how God has paved the way for us. And we read in his word too. We read in his word like when Jesus says, do not worry about the food that you're going to eat or the or the clothes that you're going to wear, because your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. In other words, he's going to provide your needs for you. And yet we still worry. Every time we have an economic crisis, we think, oh, the world's over. We still worry. We forget that God will provide. We don't believe that he's going to do what he says he's going to do. And so then we often will turn to sin um, to, to get what we think we need to get. Or speaking of sin, we just... We think about temptation, and we know, uh, look, real joy, fulfillment, it's only going to come from God. It's only going to come from obedience to God. And yet, how many times we, we see temptation, we're like, nah, this sounds good, you know? Sin, it's awesome. I'm going to sin this time. I think sin, this time sin will make me feel better. Stubbornness, rebellion, these are... 
These are at the heart of our sin problem, right? So we think of sin, we think of sin as just doing wrong things, and sin is doing wrong things, but more than that, sin comes from a stubborn and rebellious heart. A stubborn and rebellious heart that fails to believe God. That's what causes us to sin. So even if, catch this, even if we lived in a merit-based world, even if we could somehow outweigh our, our bad deeds with our good deeds, even if we could somehow earn points towards God, we still would have the problem of our, of our stubborn and rebellious hearts that we can't change, that we can't fix. And so it wouldn't matter in the end because we can't change our own hearts. So thankfully, this is a grace-based world where we are not righteous on our own, but God is gracious to provide another person's righteousness for us. We see a foreshadowing of this in what Moses does for Israel in uh, verses 25 through 29. It says, this is Moses talking, So I lay prostrate before the Lord for these 40 days and 40 nights, because the Lord had said he would destroy you. And I prayed to the Lord, O Lord God, do not destroy your people and your heritage, whom you have redeemed through your greatness, whom you have brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do not regard the stubbornness of this people or the wickedness or their sin, lest the land from which you brought us say, because the Lord was, able, was not able to bring them into the land that he promised them, and because he hated them, he has brought them out to put them to death in the wilderness. For they are your people and your heritage, whom you brought out by your great power and by your outstretched arm. So God is ready. Like, like think about right after the golden calf incident. God is ready to destroy Israel. I mean, he tells Moses, Moses, this is a stiff-necked people. Let me destroy them, and I'll start a new nation with you. And Moses is like, no, 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 come on, wait. God, remember, you are slow to anger. Okay. But we've got we to understand that Israel's stubbornness and rebellion isn't any different than Canaan's stubbornness and rebellion. What's the difference? The difference is the grace of God. God, by his grace, said, Israel, you're stubborn and rebellious, but I'm, I'm going to choose you. I'm going to choose you by my grace. So we see Moses interceding, calling upon the grace of God here. He says, do not regard their stubbornness, their wickedness, their sin. He's, that, that word do not regard there can, can also be like uh, turn away from it or or just bury it deep, like bury it in the, in the deepest trench in the deepest ocean. Just put it away as far as the east is from the west. Do that with their sin and the rebellion, Lord. Moses pleads for God to do for Israel what Jesus does in a greater way for all the people of God. So Jesus in the gospel, he intercedes for us. He goes before the Father and he says, Father, regard their sin no more put it away as far as the east is from the west. But he doesn't just say, take their sin away. He doesn't just like take the sin off of us and, and it's kind of make us neutral before God, right? 
Now, what we see on the cross is that God actually enacts his justice that is due for our sin. And he puts, puts that on Jesus. He takes out his, his wrath due for our sin on Jesus. And God is, God's justice is served because Jesus is punished for our sin. And then, so that's God's justice, but then because of his great love, God gives us Jesus' perfect righteousness as a gift of grace. That's the great exchange that happens on the cross. So, so Paul says in Philippians 3.9, this is when he's talking about how all, all, the, all the good stuff that I used to do before I knew Jesus is all just rubbish. And he says, I'm found not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. He's saying, I don't have, I'm a Christian now, but I still, I don't have a righteousness of my own. The righteousness I have is Christ's righteousness. He has given that to me. That's the gift of salvation. So I still, I I don't have a reason to boast before God because it's still not my righteousness. But I have safety to stand before God because it's Christ's righteousness. So I don't have to prove anything to God. I I don't have to earn points with him. I don't have to, I just, I get to enjoy him. I get to worship him. I get to to serve him with freedom. I get to learn the language of grace. So how does that affect my relationship with other people? I'm actually free to be gracious to other people. I don't have to see other people as competition. I don't have to be right all the time. I mean, stop and think. How many people have you hurt just because you had to be right? How many people have I hurt just because I had to be right? Why do we have to be right? I mean, sometimes it's important, but is it really always important? When I learn the language of grace, I can, I can learn how to apologize to my kids, to my wife, to my friends. I can, uh, I can admit when I fail I can let someone else take credit for something. Even if, even if I should get the credit for it, I can let someone else take credit. Because this is a grace-based world. This is a grace-based world. It's not a merit-based world. Merit, hard work, they have their place. They're important, but they don't make the world go round. It is a grace-based world. We don't have a righteousness of our own. We don't have a reason to boast before God. But by grace, we have a perfect righteousness of Christ. And one day, we will enter the ultimate promised land, the new heavens and new earth. And we won't get there because we earned it. We won't get there because of good behavior. We'll get there because of the grace of God. Let's go ahead and pray uh, before we get to our time of celebrating the Lord's Supper.